0: Kick off episode 616 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear, Monster Kid Radio, that is, with the song Shore Unshore. It is from the Space Tomb EP, from the band The Squadron Leaders. They're a surf band based out of Worthing in the UK. And you can find them at the Squadron Check out Space Tomb EP as well as their other release in which we surf and make sure you let them know the Kid radio sent you big thanks to them for letting us play their music here on the show you'll hear the song in its entirety at the end of this episode how's it going everybody i know the episode is about a day and a half late and my apologies for that you'll have to forgive me and maybe excuse me a little bit because uh the past weekend i married my best friend and my forever person and uh i've been a little busy Uh, Just kind of getting used to uh, married life with this amazing woman as we are slowly combining my two-bedroom apartment and the, I guess it's multi-bedroom house, but really have two bedrooms that are, are, you know what? We're moving. And there's a lot of packing and sorting and donations and eBay sales and everything else happening uh, that's part of that process. So I've been a little busy working on that i did get many many messages from a lot of you by email or by facebook uh maybe even a couple on instagram now but i think about it congratulating me on getting married and you know what I, I appreciate it thank you so much for all of your support i've shared all of those messages of love and support with my beautiful bride beth who uh is just man the wedding was amazing so if you were there thank you for attending uh, I know a lot of you could not have been there because, uh, well, you're not in the Portland, Oregon area. We got married at the Joy Cinema, which is a very special place to us, to me in particular, to Monster Kid Radio. So big thanks to Jeff Punk Rock Martin, and his staff over at the Joy Cinema for making that happen for us. And uh, you know what? It was just amazing. Now, we did capture a lot of video and a ton of of photos i haven't gone through all of them yet but there are at least 700 photos that have been sent to me by the person who was doing the photography at the event so we have that to go through and uh, we have some video as well and maybe even audio i haven't listened to the audio yet again been busy uh, but uh, there will be a wedding video on our team death youtube channel in the near future so stay tuned for that But why don't we get to what you're really here for today. Let's get to Monster Kid Radio. Let's talk about some monster movies. Uh, Well, I'm not going to because, again, Steve Couric is coming in and helping me out a little bit. And just, you know, he got some content for us. You know, the wedding present that he gave to me was getting with some Monster Kid Radio irregulars and creating some content that I can run while, uh, you know, I've been dealing with getting married and, and all of that. Yeah, and I appreciate it. So Steve Kurek is the mastermind behind the DieCast Movie Podcast. If you're not listening to the DieCast Movie Podcast, and really just go look it up, you'll find it. It's all over the internet. You can find it in various podcast directories, on various podcast catchers, and everywhere else. Go check it out. If you like what you hear when he sits down with Kevin Slick, longtime friend of the show, man from Monster Bash. You know he, he, you know him. You've seen him if you've been to Monster Bash. He's been on the show in the past, and this time around, he and Steve are sitting down to talk about one of my favorite underrated with we'll Go See Karloff Films and that would be the movie The Invisible Ray. I've been wanting to talk about The Invisible Ray on the show for a very, very long time. In fact, I was going to do it with Craig Beam, who is a long time friend of the show as well. And then someday, he and I will sit down and we'll talk about it. But in the meantime, Kevin and Steve are going to talk about it. So, I hope you enjoy that. Of course, it will not be an episode of Monster Kid Radio without some amazing contributions from some amazing supporters and producers in their own right. We've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters a Filmland and Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. So we've got that coming up as well. I did get a piece of email about the Twonky and you know what? I'm going to sit on that until next week, I believe is when we're going to go over feedback. So if you have any feedback about anything you hear on the show, feel free to email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call and leave us a voicemail at area code 360-524-2484. We talked about The Twonky. I say we. Scott Morris and Steve Turk talked about that movie last week on the show. If you have any thoughts on The Twonky or the previous episode with Mighty Joe Young with Kenny or anything, really, anything you hear about on Monster Kid Radio you want to talk about, please email me or give me a call and we'll include it on a future episode of MKR. And speaking of the future of MKR, let's talk about the current, the present of MKR. The present is happening now.
1: Let no one leave. Move on yet your parents. We will not stop until we have discovered the vampires who seek the life of this beautiful girl and her lover. Watch out! They may be hovering over you, or you, or you. Danger stalks through the night. No one is safe there fury would follow us to the ends of the earth. No, we must destroy them all together. Scourge of mankind, they shall be found. I hereby summon... To this place, next week, every person within the sound of my voice, you shall be judges of this eerie conspiracy. Here we shall meet, Lionel Barrymore, Elizabeth Allen, Bela Lugosi, Jean Herschel, Lionel Atkins. Of the Vampire The following announcement is a special bulletin Direct from American International It may be too late Our planet may be doomed Armies have been alerted The hotlines are in constant use Civilization is in chaos The monsters are in revolt Now a direct report This is j Webb in New York. Godzilla is laying waste to the city. The citizens have never known such fear. At the same time, Rodan is attacking Moscow. The city is alert for military action. In London, Manda is spreading horror in its path. And in the Far East, Peking trembles under the wrath of Mothra. We must destroy all monsters. Yes, destroy all monsters, or our civilization will be destroyed. Destroy all monsters is a motion picture. See for yourself. It really could happen. Destroy all monsters in color from American International is rated G for general audiences. Konga. Not since King Kong has the screen exploded with such mighty fury. Defying bullets, bombs, rockets standing a hundred feet tall, sending an entire civilization into panic. Konga. In color and spectamation.
2: live from the land of light in nebula m78 home of the mighty ultra heroes it's monster kid radio's beta capsule review return of ultraman episode 10 dinosaur detonation order original air date june 4th 1971. While digging for fossils with Mr. Yoshimoto's monster study group, Jiro Sakata finds a dinosaur bone. He gets to show it off to Minami and Go, who arrive at the dig site, just in time to witness a bulldozer uncover a large fossilized tailbone. Jiro and friends nickname the creature Stegon and look forward to working on its extraction. But a construction company claims the site and sets dynamite to blow up the specimen. Unmoved by the children's cries of protest, the construction workers proceed with the detonation. A strange substance is released from the fossil, dripping onto an unfortunate worker and dissolving his flesh almost instantly. All of Monster Attack Team becomes involved with the investigation, and although Go senses the fossil is actually alive, another detonation of Stegon is attempted. Rather than destroying the monster, the explosion revives Stegon, which burrows underground to avoid further bombardment. MAT cannot agree on a strategy, as Go and Minimi oppose Stegon’s execution. The two are subsequently removed from the mission, but provide unauthorized backup just in case things go awry, which, of course, they do. Dinosaur Detonation Order very wisely taps into the natural connection between a childhood fascination with dinosaurs and an affection for giant monsters, something that lies at the root of many a kaiju fan. This is brought home very winsomely in Episode 10. The children of the monster study group are of two minds. They don't want any harm to come to Stegon, who almost becomes the mascot of their group, but they also cheer on Ultraman, who's there to keep them safe. This tension is at the heart of the Ultraman franchise in all its forms. Ultraman is a great hero, and monsters are awesome, so you can root for either side, or both. The fact that kids tend to favor monsters is not lost on the screenwriter Shozo Uehara, who has the dinosaur-loving youngsters name-drop Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidra, and Red King, Twin Tail, and Takong, blending the worlds of Toho and Subaruia into one monster universe. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting.
1: Go! Don't you dare come back here! Why, something's still showing? I say, you're materializing. Go get your clothes off. Why, Professor, I'm ashamed of you. Get me a nurse, get me a doctor, get me something. George, we better get the Professor. What for? To cheer up a lot of bedclothes? Come clean about how that machine works. Make me invisible. I did not invent that machine to make killers like you invisible. Oh, this is gonna be good. Whoopie! Those are the noisiest grasshoppers I ever heard. If <laughs> Christopher Columbus were being shot at! There's an enemy spy at large, an invisible man. It's amazing. Oh, you will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See the Invisible Agent, suggested by H. G. Wells Invisible Man, starring Elona Massey and John Hall. With Peter Laurie, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Basserman, in the most amazing story of our times. Stop! I didn't know. not let him get away. Gazunta. Who is there? How did you know I was going to England? I didn't, but... So but the I... trap was all set, eh? Frank, how can you talk like that? Oh, oh. oh what's this? Uh? It's full of hooks! Uh. Oh, they're tearing into me!
3: Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Film Land. Today we are talking about the classic Karloff-Lugosi pairing, The Invisible Ray. It was mentioned in FM 134 in an article about the two horror icons' joint projects. Let's hear what it had to say about The Invisible Ray. Dr. Janice Rook, Boris Karloff, calls a group of scientists to his Carpathian laboratory cum observatory. There he demonstrates an invention of his which enables the viewer to look back in time. With this machine, he proves that millenniums ago, a meteor containing the rare and powerful element Radium X landed in Africa. Before you can say Sir Henry Morton Stanley, Ruck and company are in the deepest, darkest Africa, or at least at Universal Studio Recreation thereof, Ruck goes off on his own and finds the meteor. He harnesses the Radium X into a ray which can cure blindness and blast boulders, and maybe even cure blind boulders. He discovers, to his dismay, however, that the Radium X has poisoned him. He glows in the dark, and his slightest touch is fatal. He keeps this secret from all but Dr. Felix Binet, who develops an antidote to Ruck's radiation poisoning. The radiation is also affecting Ruck's brain, driving him slowly insane. He leads people to believe he has been killed, This allows him to concoct a plan of revenge against his expeditionary colleagues, whom his crazed mind believes have stolen his invention. This also allows his faithful wife, Diane, to marry Ronald, whom she loves. He attempts to kill the group off one by one, but before he can consummate his revenge, his wise old mother dashes the antidote from his hands. Radiation consumes him and he dies in a flash of flaming phosphorus. The Invisible Ray is unique among the universal horror classics. Unique because it is the only true science fiction film of the bunch. Unique because it predated the sci-fi boom of the 50s. Karloff is definitely the star of this film, but Lugosi's role should not be ignored. Karloff in curls, bushy eyebrows, and mustache is perfect in the role of Janice Ruck, a role which requires a lot of anguish, anger, and a bit of overplaying. Karloff was helped in his role by John P. Fulton, Universal Special Effects Wizard. Fulton superimposed a steady pulsing glow over Karloff to make him appear radioactive. He later used this same technique for man-made monster and the Scarlet Claw. The invisible ray has several memorable scenes, but foremost among these is the stunning opening in the observatory. Karloff's narration over a screen filled with images of meters and nebulae is indeed the stuff that dreams are made of or nightmares. Starting with and including this film, Karloff and Lugosi would never again be equal partners. From this point on, Karloff would dominate. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Get the Pentagon,
1: Class A emergency. The Joint Chiefs of Staff are expecting the call. The rocket has just been entered by a robot. It lives. Life, consciousness, a machine? It intends to put itself section by section into orbit around the Earth. And that day forever forward, Earth will be its slave. visible by mysterious scientific force. Held in the sinister power of the Berserk electronic brain machine developed by the boy's father, famous scientist, Dr. Tom Marino. You have 58 hours. If at the end of that time you have failed to supply the required information, the boy will be destroyed. Top scientists and brass from the armed forces confer on the emergency. One by one, they are trapped and microscopic transistors implanted in their brains. Each one of examination by Dr. Bannerman. May one ask why? Because at least two of us here, and maybe more, have one of these surgically embedded in their skulls, which means they're completely under non-human control. Dr. Marino, you have been informed of the situation. My robot is already in space, and your son is completely in his hands. Marino, I direct your attention toward the television screen. You and your wife will remain here, and you will be obliged to look and listen. Are you ready, robot? Ready, master. Good. You may begin with his eyes. <laughs> In three days, the dead will destroy all the living. I am from another planet, outside your galaxy. I'm sorry, I I just don't understand. Unless Earth surrenders in 24 hours, we will begin a mass invasion. We are invisible. We are invisible, Adam Penner. You cannot see us. From outer space come the invisible invaders, living dead men threatening to destroy all life on Earth.
4: Hello, everybody. Welcome to this emergency episode of Monster Kid Radio. It's an emergency episode because Derek asked me to help him out a little bit, and I'm doing a fill-in episode for him to try to keep these things working on a weekly basis while he goes through wedding preparations and other stuff as life happens. I don't know when this episode's going to come out, but it's it's late February, and we're just having a great time here enjoying this interesting weather that's been going across the country. But Derek did send me a letter saying he needed help with this episode and had the label on it from Derek The Magnificent. And being an old Johnny Carson fan, I knew right away, oh, that's like the Karnak thing. So he wants me to do that. So I put on my special hat and I hold the envelope up to my head. And I think, who should be guest hosting with me? Kevin Slick. Now let's see what clues Derek put in the envelope for me to do. Okay, it says, the Pixar movie Up the Bird, Banjo, and Oil. Well, of course, yeah, Kevin Slick. The bird's name is Kevin. Kevin plays the banjo, and his last name is Slick like an oil slick. And who's on the show? But right now, it's Kevin Slick.
5: (laughs) Exactly, just like an oil slick, or a bird, or a banjo, one of those things. Or all of them mixed together.
4: I bet you never thought you'd be called that uh, name after a Pixar bird.
5: <laughs> no, when I was a kid, um, maybe some other, other people have had this experience when I was a kid, you know, I was always looking for other people with my name, or you'd go to those places when you were traveling and they would have like little license plates you could get as a souvenir and they'd have Bobby, Tommy, Rick, you know, everything. And they like, Kevin was nowhere to be found as far as I could tell. But you know, at a certain point it was like, Oh, it became a cool name, I think.
4: And, and like Pixar movie, the bird, you got a colorful shirt on. So it's a colorful bird. Of course, the bird in the movie was misgendered as a female, but Hey, you know,
5: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we Kevin's can't be too particular. We'll take, we'll take, uh, whatever references in pop culture we can get.
4: Exactly. And, and how have you been doing, you know, I know it's been a while since you've been on a Derek show. I think, you were on there like last year sometime i don't think you've been on this year
5: no i don't i don't think so so i've been uh playing music as as usual uh writing and recording and uh, playing playing live mostly in the bluegrass kind of kind of vein um and uh but i've put out a couple of books recently that you can find on amazon if you look under kevin flick there's a one of poetry, one of of comics and drawings, and just recently put out one of photography. Um, so I've been doing that sort of thing. And um, gosh, what else? Uh, just started playing the ukulele because I'm going to be teaching uh, at a camp this summer where I was going to be just teaching mandolin, but they said, "Could you also teach ukulele?" And I thought, "Yeah, I guess I can get a ukulele and learn how to play it." So that's, that's kind of been what's going on. Lately around here.
4: I, I can, I can almost hear like tiptoe for the tulips now coming through.
5: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or you could do, or I'm
4: sure you can also do a great rendition of hallelujah, you know, and, um, and really bring down mm-hmm. the house.
5: Yes, indeed. Well, it's, it's a nice instrument because it's really small and light. You can easily carry it around with you. That's, that's one thing that, that is really handy. Um, any of my friends out there that that have played in, in in rock bands and had heavy amplifiers that you had to carry around with you, it's awfully nice to have an instrument that weighs about two ounces.
4: <laughs> I also, when I was working on the college campus, there, I saw there's a, a ukulele club at the time. This is just like several years ago, so everything's been moving. If, if it's continuing the trend, it was it's moved up in popularity again, uh, which is always a good thing to see when certain instruments that. Sometimes you just think of certain novelty acts back in the day when you and I were growing up are now really starting to get more respect.
5: Yeah, I think it. I think it's a wonderful thing for people to to make music with with friends and get together and and do that and share it. And you know, um, any any instrument you can become a virtuoso on pretty much. There's almost there's almost no instrument I can think of that that doesn't have that possibility. But some of them, like a ukulele, for example, um, I think of it like this. Imagine it's a ladder, and at the top of the ladder is, you know, the ultra virtuoso. Well, the bottom rung of the ladder on the ukulele is really low. Like, you can step onto it pretty quickly and learn enough chords that you could play any of your favorite songs, and then you get together with a bunch of friends and play and make music. Yeah, that's a good thing, I think.
4: As a friend of mine like to call it, you get to have some happy, joyful n- noise and everybody has yeah. a good time. <laughs> Indeed. And, and people, t- you don't have to be great at an instrument. You don't have to be great at singing. You just have to have fun, you know, and just go out there and just let it go.
5: And if you have fun doing something, whether it's playing an instrument or or drawing or or taking photographs or making movies or whatever it is that you do, if you have fun doing it, you'll get better at it because you keep doing it and it will just get better as you go. And, you know, you'll meet more people. I think the more you can do it socially, um, the better because it, it connects you with other people and um, it's fun. And that's what, that's what helps you learn it better, I think, um, rather than just sitting in a room by yourself and like, you know, reading out of a book and learning something yeah
4: oh, I, I agree with you I agree with you and now Derek normally does the classic five but I, I'm doing a new twist during these episodes I'm doing for him as emergency feed uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm he's done the classic five I know you've been on the show many times and I did one with Kenny and he did, he's been on the show a bunch and knows the classic five in and out I think you even own your own deck like I do of the classic five
5: <laughs> of course everyone should have their own deck for the classic five.
4: And that's another thing you could share with your friends and stuff like that. And if they're not truly into the classic harping, thing, it could be a little gateway thing. And it's like, you can ask them one question and then you can say, Hey, let's watch a movie with so-and-so in it or, or whatever. And then you can start to, it's like that gateway drug, so to speak.
5: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah.
4: But I'm going to tailor these questions to you, Kevin slick. Okay. So being that you are an artist, of lots of different instruments and stuff like that. I'm going to start you off with an easy one. If you had to make a band from the classic monster movies, who would you put in the band? So four or five members of the band, what instrument would they play or, and, and, or would they be a lead singer, a backup singer? So not ah, a nice okay. easy one for you to start with.
5: <laughs> Wait, okay. Well, let's see. Hmm. Well, this is a good one. Um, You know, the first one that came to mind would be was was Christopher Lee as as a front man somewhere, just because he's so so dynamic. Um, I think I would want Boris Karloff on the drums, percussion in some way, because he was always solid. You know, always dependable, always right on. Never went too far afield. You know, as a drummer, you need to be something like that. For some reason, uh, this might be an odd band instrumentally but Peter Cushing struck me as a violin player or a fiddle player probably violin player really more than, than fiddle music so I, I saw that as, as like there so oh gosh who else should we have in this in this band here um, we need someone on like rhythm guitar I think um, gosh who should we have in rhythm guitar maybe Dwight Fry another dependable person who who um you know wasn't uh I mean he could be pretty far out he could he could do some wild stuff but he was always dependable as an actor so you know I put I put him in the band there so I'm in the, in like a rhythm position because he's good at supporting the overall overall thing um and then maybe as another guitar player and it would have Vincent Price in there too Again, always dependable, you know, and uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what that band would sound like, but, uh, <laughs> but if Christopher Lee was out front singing, you know, <laughs> that, would, that would sell the whole thing anyhow, so it would work.
4: And we all know Christopher Lee sings heavy metal, so you can just imagine this guy's trying to really rock
5: it out. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yes. Without a doubt.
4: That would be, that would be an interesting group. I mean, I, what would you, what would you call the group? What would be their name?
5: Ah, wow. Um, hmm. well the first one that just came to mind was using Dwight Fry and it's called the band Fritz. <laughs> one of his many one of his many character names there. I think I'd go with that. Okay, cool.
4: Cool. Now speak keeping in the music theme. There's been a lot of monster movie music, you know, done over the decades. What's your yeah. what's one of your favorite take it away the monster mash because you're so much associated with the monster bash. I'm going to, I'm going to disqualify that one from you. I don't want that. I don't want gotcha. you to give you the easy out.
5: <laughs> gotcha.
4: Okay. Um, pick another, pick like another song or two that you consider like go-tos for a monster fan.
5: Oh, for, like a so certain pop music kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, Buck Owens did, did one about, uh, Monster Holiday, I believe it's called. Um, that's, that's, it's a cool one. I always like. I walked with a zombie um, that that just pretty much repeats that line over and over again. Um, it's not really directly related to the movie I walked with a zombie, but it's a, it's a great uh, a great little one there. Um, Werewolves of London is another one that it would, it probably realistically should should disqualify too because it's so obvious. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'd go with I walked with a zombie. That's 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 definitely a good one.
4: And for me, just because of my weird sensibility, I'd go with the, the purple people eater.
5: <laughs> that yes, that's a classic. The fifty and that yeah, that's actually a great one. I hadn't thought of that because that that has that whole nineteen fifties sci fi uh, thing going on with it.
4: I know. I, I just I just love it. You know, it, it gets you into that. Especially I disqualified the monster match, but you put that monster match, werewolf of London, any throw in the other songs and in, in, in between them. So you got your tent pole, you have a you can have a good little party score going on there, party list, a playlist. I'm sure yeah. Jeffrey Cree, as we both know from Monster Bash, being the DJ he is, I'm sure he can come up with a great list right off the top of his head and really keep us going.
5: Oh, there's Witch Queen of New Orleans. Uh that, that I forgot about that one. That might that that could possibly slide into the monster uh, monster theme there somewhere too.
4: I'll tell you that then. And of course, we'd all know if it if it was we're doing this with modern, more modern recent renditions. We'd also have Mark Statler being a singer.
5: Oh yes, well that whole that whole album has got his the creepy chiller band thing. That's that's got great stuff all over that one.
4: Exactly. So I mean, we you know, we know tons of people that could that do current stuff and the old stuff. Oh, it's just great. Yeah. Musical score. So we're going to go. What what's one of your favorite scores? for a classic monster movie?
5: Well, um, the Hammer Dracula films are great, I think, you know, uh, in that they use that recurring uh, sort of little motif, the Dracula thing like that in there. But um, probably my favorite, it has to be uh, King Kong, um, you know, the original King Kong. Has a great um, score to it in that it, it that it strikes me is that it's it's very symphonic. Like the whole thing, you can listen to that whole score like you would listen to a, a Beethoven symphony, and it it flows nicely like that. It doesn't doesn't repeat a whole lot of things. Each kind of scene, each segment has its own sort of movement, like the, you know, a movement in a symphony. And so that, that would be one of my favorites. It's, um, it has sort of a vaguely, um, I don't know, uh, what do I want to say tribal, you know, kind of jungle thing, but it doesn't, it doesn't overdo it. It doesn't overplay that, that whole thing. It's really more like the whole hugeness of King Kong is what's coming out in, in the music rather than, okay we're we're in a jungle so I'm gonna play bongo drums or something like that it, it has a it has a a flavor that I think is really captivating
4: and now to, to take that and change it a little bit the last 20 30 years which one of your favorite monster movie scores
5: Wow gosh that's to think about movies I've seen that were made in the last 20 or 30 years most of the movies I watch are in black and white and were made about a hundred years ago. But,
4: um, and I'm trying to, I'm trying wow. to move you to the, to the modern era.
5: Yes. And now you're, you're dragging me kicking and, and screaming into the 21st century. I appreciate that.
4: With your, with your um, ukulele backing you up.
5: Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. Um, you know, I don't, um, I can't, to be honest, I can't think of any right now because the the movies that I've seen in in that time period that I have really that I've liked, that are are genre films. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, the ones that I think use music more mm-hmm. that I would I would have to go to would be would be any of the more recent like Godzilla films because we watch. My son and I are both big. Kaiju fans and um, those kind of big spectacular uh, films really utilize the music in it, you know? So I'd probably go with the most recent, you know, uh, Godzilla Kong uh, matchup one as one that I remember the music being dramatic and, and really enhancing the scenes. Whereas like a lot of other films that I've seen that are, that are more, um, that are sort of in the genre. I'm, I'm thinking, if I remember them, I'm thinking more about like the acting or the what the plot was or the plot twist that, that took place in it. Um, films like A Quiet Place or something like that, which I thought were really fascinating, but I don't remember the music is being that memorable in those ones.
4: Going back to Godzilla, the recent one, Godzilla movies, Godzilla King, <coughs> Godzilla King of Monsters. I remember mm-hmm. seeing at the movie theater, and right when I left the movie theater. I bought the soundtrack, you know, cause wow. I just enjoyed um, the take that was done on it so well. And I, was, do you remember that soundtrack? You know, it had that, cause it had that like tribal riff going on with it with um, a yeah. mixture of the old mm-hmm. and the new. And it just, I, I don't, it just, it just clicked with me and it's something I listen to when I'm taking a long drive, I'll still put it on. And it's just like, Oh, this is, this is, this is, it's my kaiju loving sweet spot.
5: <laughs> That's a good spot.
4: <laughs> but do you remember that one at all? I mean you're, I know you're talking about Godzilla versus Kong yeah. but the one before that
5: uh-huh that I can't remember it specifically, but i I enjoyed all of those ones, so I probably heard it in there and, and liked what I heard somehow
4: Awesome. and now the, the most the most pressing question this June at Monster Bash are you going to be performing live on stage
5: the June Monster Bash um this June i don't believe I, I um i don't believe we're going to be doing the Bash Boys this June but we'll be doing them in October i think is if i'm remembering correctly um because some of the you know some of the times with with Monster Bash, um, those of you that have been there know, um, it's a miracle if we can keep it all on schedule. Um, and sometimes when there's just so many different things that we want to schedule in, um, you know, it, it's hard to fit them all in. So I think we just, I think it's the, it's the June one that we decided we're going to take a pass on and come back in October in the October one, um, just to allow some more space for getting some other things in there you know we've been we've been uh developing some more of the things like uh leonard hayhurst's uh, game shows which are, are fabulous um i enjoy those immensely i really like what's your monster and and the match game and those things that he's been doing uh partly because it's got that great nostalgic vibe of game shows that we all remember but they're actually you know I love the what's my monster one where you're watching the panelists and they're think, you're thinking like, Oh, they're on the wrong track. They're going down the wrong track. <laughs> Ask a different question. That's, you're getting, you know, up track
4: on it. But amazingly enough, I don't know how many times they pull it out. When you think they're not going to get it at all when they get to, okay, give us your yes. final answer. And John Paul, check it, uh, check it. Um, yes. Like pulls it out of somewhere, you know, or, or Tom Shabilla. will pull it out of nowhere. It's like, where are they going to get it? And somehow they they come up with the final answer, and you and you just because you, and you can see like the um the the, the jaws of vi- the, you know the, the victory being just def- taken away right at the very end. You know, like the prize is almost in the person's hand, and it's like gone. The crestfall. It, 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 that that is heartbreaking. It's like the um, the old. ABC sports thing where it's had the, the, the joy of victory and the agony of defeat. And it's like, we're seeing agony of defeat over and over. It's, it's amazing how the, those two guys are able to pull it out over and over again.
5: Yeah. They would be my go-to guys to ask any question about obscure uh, horror films because they're, they're pretty stunning. That they
4: are. Well, well, thank you for doing those five questions with us. I hope people learn more about your mindset with different things from those. Great. But that's not why we're here, though, is it? We're here to talk yeah, about here. a certain movie that you picked. What was that movie you picked, Kevin Slick?
5: Uh, I picked The Invisible Ray, 1936 Universal film. Um, it, it's one I enjoy. A- and I I think of it often in collection, connection, collection, collaboration, whatever, with... Um, several of the, of the Karloff Lagosi films, uh, partly because I have like a lot of us, probably have the franchise collection that has, um, black cat, Raven, invisible Ray, black Friday, or is the rumor. I think there's all the ones on it. Um, but to me, the, that those films in general were just a real high point for universal B movie making, um, of that era they um have so many great qualities for that sort of film uh, and so um yeah it's a favorite i, I watched it yesterday again um today's sunday so it was saturday afternoon it's a perfect saturday afternoon movie it is a movie that should be watched on a saturday afternoon matinee it's it's so uh, perfect for that sort of thing
4: this was my first time seeing The Invisible Ray was for this podcast. Oh, so mm-hmm. I, I've always been meaning to watch it. And when you picked it, and I was like, oh, it's going to, I could, I could put a line for the list, the, the ever-growing list, as all movie fans have, the list that, that never seems to, it always seems to get longer. It was a gross, how many movies you keep watching that are on it. It keeps growing the movies you want to add to it. Yeah. So I want to thank you for picking that I've really enjoyed it. It's a a nice one hour and like 18 minute, 19 minute. Um, it moves.
5: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I love about those, those films, uh, as, as we were talking earlier about some, I think before we were recording, we were talking about some films we've seen recently where it seems like they leave two or three subplots just hanging out in the wind. These, you know, these universals of this era, no wasted no wasted moment. I mean it's it just has a it's a very basic plot and I think that's a, that's fine because human beings, we love stories, you know, and the story can be at its base as simple as here's a brilliant guy. He is searching for something that's like his life's mission, his life's work. He finds it but it destroys him in the process. There you go. That's the plot. You know, it's like uh, uh, what I tell uh, when I'm teaching writing with students in school in the past, I, I've often said, you know, any good story, you can you can give me a synopsis of in three sentences. You know, then you expand on it, but uh, that's fine. You can just tell me what it's about. And so there's that story. Now, all of the ways that, that plays out is pretty dramatic and interesting, but that's basically the story of the film.
4: And, that, and those three lines have been the the, outlay, the outline of a lot of films. And that, as you yeah. said, it, it can be taken so many different directions. And mm-hmm. just because the plot is familiar, or it, or it could be a redo of a certain thing, I always mm-hmm. use the analogy of like a magic trick. So like if you know how okay. a magic trick is done, but yeah. you go to sometimes some people will go to see a great magician do the trick that they that they themselves have done hundreds or maybe thousands of times, but they want to see somebody who's so good at it, do it because it's just, it's to them. It's just a, a marvelous thing. So the same thing you as an, an artist, when you see somebody that's a, like um, doing a, uh, doing a great thing, Rhonda Vincent, um, mm-hmm. When she's playing the, when she's playing up her bluegrass, and you just see somebody there just doing it, and you're just like in, in awe, and, and knowing that you're just yeah. seeing somebody that's at the at the top of their game. Here you're seeing Karloff and Nagosi, you know, right there in their prime, being able to do so well, and it's just it just enjoy it.
5: Yeah, and and. You know, one of the things that's wonderful about this film too is they're they're, they're both great. The the supporting actors are are all excellent in it. Um, I'm always appreciative of a film like this or Black Cat, for example, where Lugosi is not the insane one. <laughs> Lugosi is the you know intelligent, thoughtful person that's that's like. He's the good guy, I guess, for for want of a better word. Although Karloff is certainly not a bad guy in this film, but he is the guy who kind of you know loses his mind, as it were, and he he you know he he goes astray. Um, uh, Lugosi is the is the reasonable person, and and he gets to play you know as this um, uh, Doctor Benet. Um, he gets to play this intelligent well-respected um character uh which is often not who he is you know um he's often you know either when he when he plays a, a a doctor or a you know scientist or something like that it's someone who's crazy um but here he plays you know reasonable person and and he could have played those kind of roles all over the place. Uh, he would have been perfect in lots of films. Again, sort of, of course, the thing with Bela is the shame of uh, his limited opportunities. But, you know, as, um, you know, you watch this film and there's all these different characters in there that you recognize, you've seen before, like uh, Bula Bondi, who's in it, um, who anyone would recognize as uh, Jimmy Stewart's mother in "It's a Wonderful Life"? You know, she always played that matronly woman character. You know, in, in a thousand different films, Legosi could have played the intelligent scientist, philosopher, professor in any number of movies um, within the horror genre or not. But uh, there we have it. So, I thought I think he's he's wonderful in this film,
4: and I want to mirror your your same thoughts where. It was nice seeing Lugosi play an altruistic altruistic character, you know, going through mm-hmm. and looking at what, what can we do to benefit mankind. And also wanting to help Karloff's character, Dr. Rook, um, you know, get to get through these issues and and brilliantly solves it, and but also seeing where things could go, you know, having that presence of mind like, uh, oh, we gotta do this together. And and really I look as as Carlos' character falling into jealousy and part of that yeah. was brought on from the uh, poisoning that he was, the radiation poisoning he was going through. And part of that was also, uh, he's not used to being around other people. He was more of a, a hermit type scientist and who just wanted to be left yeah. alone. And I think being thrown in with other people and other personalities, not normally being able to handle that having that 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 jealousy issue going on which was being um tainted or twisted by his condition that came during mm-hmm. the movie i think those three factors caused him to be this fallen character where he started yeah. off in a in a good way but then he was also looking at way, the ways to use the stuff he was discovering in a destructive manner but also was unbeknownst to us until later in the film was also looking at it as, in, in a positive manner. Cause one of the things he did was, was heal his mom. And, um, yeah. but at that same time, it took him forever. Who knows how much time it passed in the movie, you know, movie time, you know, how much time it passed in the movie where he took him to develop that where Lugosi's character, Dr. Benet was also doing it to heal people. He was healing hundreds, maybe thousands of people from their ailment uh, their their ailments and Carlos' you know, and and Carlos's character only focused on one so you could just see the benefit of having the multiple people being able to do certain things and to use mm-hmm. this it was it, it was interesting contrast between how the two people handled it and how they went about doing it and i think that really holds up today where certain people have certain te- um, technologies and other stuff and they could look at it as to benefit a small group or to benefit a larger group um mm-hmm and, and, and nothing wrong with either mindset. It's just how different ways, different people think.
5: Yeah. 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 It's, it's a good, um, so it's got, I mean, it, it, there's, there's a good example of it's a basically simple storyline, but then there's all these other possibilities of things to think about. Like, like that, like, yeah, how do you use, uh, uh, scientific medical advance like that, you know, like, like when uh, they invented the polio vaccine and and decided to just make it available to anyone, you know, not, not keep it and things like that. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful film again of that era, the 1930s in the, that you know, at the beginning, it has a little thing about, you know, how many things do we accept now as fact that once were considered insane, you know, what, it, what you're about to see has been, I love the line where it says what you're about to see has been, whispered in the cloisters of science, like imagine all these scientists, oh, did you hear about that, like whispering amongst themselves, but, um, you know, it it was, uh, I think that era, the 30s was, you know, one of those eras of discovery where things, you know, uh, with uh, atomic power and things like that going on and and starting to work on creating rockets that could leave Earth and and so forth like that. a a real time of and a lot of the science fiction of that era is this this sort of boundless, Oh my goodness. What, you know, we're going to be able to do anything. We can do anything. We can travel to space. We can do this kind of thing. And then, you know, Oh, and we find these, these strange materials, whether it's radium or whatever, you know, and we can do all these things with it like large. um, But again, and that's, that's a whole other regular kind of archetypal story, story storyline of, Oh, the wonderful things we can do and the destructive power of this stuff that we're that we're discovering, you know, what's going to happen? Are we going to use it for good or are we going to Will it fall into the hands of people who who want to use it for destructive purposes at the the same time? Uh, That's a you know, that's a great that's a great storyline.
4: And I agree with you. And I, I want to expand upon what you're you're saying a little more. You're talking about the 30s, but if you think about it in that 40 50 year period prior to when this movie comes out, how much change had happened in society? You know, you had um, the telephone, you had electricity, you had movies. I mean, you had all these different things, radio, that. You know, if you were to went 50, 60 years prior to that, people people laugh at you. Oh, you be oh, you're kidding me. So here, so much in such a little period of time, and then you go from 1936 to today. And mm-hmm. if you were to talk to them about different things that uh, we can do and use, like a, you know, a computer in our pockets and all this other stuff, they would be laughing at us, thinking, "Oh, that's just crazy talk. That's science fiction." And and all those kind of... Of course, we don't have flying cars yet, so I guess you know, we, we haven't matched up with everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
5: But, yeah, you're right. That, that era prior to that was uh, amazing. You think about, in 1936, you had airplanes flying from America to Europe, and it was only 30 years prior that the Wright brothers flew for, what, a minute and a half or something like that, a Kitty Hawk. Um, that kind of thing is is amazing. Um, yeah, I mean that's a that's a whole wild sort of thing to think about the twentieth the twentieth century and and how things how things changed. You know, I mean, my grandmother was born when the Wright brothers first flew, and you know, I remember watching the moon landing with her. You know, so there's there's a great book ended you know kind of thing. Um, Nowadays, maybe the changes that we're experiencing are, are certainly as fast and as huge, but um, I don't know. It, it, it feels different in some way. Maybe it's because what's changing is within like computing speed or, or ways we're able to do things on the internet and things like that. Um, I was just joking with someone at the other day because. Um, we had this idea for for something at this bluegrass festival we were playing at. The, the idea came up like the week before. And of course, we were able to get it because it was like, well, what is there in the world right now that you can't go online and order it and have it delivered to your door the next day? Like nothing, pretty much anything you want, you can get uh, sent to you right away. That's pretty crazy wild, but um, it somehow feels different thinking about like the Wright brothers to Apollo 11, that kind of change.
4: Oh, it is. And, and uh, I was going to say, t- taking on with your thing about t- interesting things. I, you can also wonder what if um, mm-hmm. I was teaching, I used to teach at different companies, with CPR first aid classes. And one time I was teaching at Baltimore gas and electric, which is like the power company mm-hmm. of the area here. And I was down at one of their main headquarters locations in Baltimore city And they had all these signs up, not signs up, pictures up of old time pictures from the early 19th, I mean, early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. And I was reading the captions with, and I was talking to this one guy. And in there, I think it was 1920-ish, they had electric trucks, trucks powered by electricity. And um, so th- this is t- technology that's been going on for a hundred years, but because their the distance they could go was limited. That's why vehicles went the way they went, you know, for that last hundred years. But, uh, but we were both talking like this, this is like 20, 30 years ago when we were talking about this, what if it would have actually followed the other path? What would technology be like today with all that innovation and all that focus being put on that? where would we be if that hundred year period would have focused on the opposite technology. And it's like those two paths. And again, you know, that science fiction, science fact type thing, it's just people just didn't want to go with it at that time. Who knows where we would be now?
5: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that, that's certainly very much in the, in the, the, the theme of this film that's, you know, you, you find this, you find this incredibly powerful thing. What do you do with it? Where does it go? How's it used? Um, and uh, yeah, it's you know again, Karloff, I think plays the, plays the character really well because he plays out all of these kind of conflicting emotions of like because at one at one moment, like you said, he he heals his mother with this thing that he has discovered, which she's been blind for some amount of time, but he is also ranting and raving about having more power that he can destroy you know, entire continents, you know, across the world or something like that. And so it's it's a little incongru- incongruous, uh, but, you know, he, he plays that sort of thing well. And in fact, even as the film ends, you know, with his mother, basically, <laughs> there's the lesson, you should have listened to your mother, because she <laughs> told twice told him right off the bat, don't, don't do this, you're not good with people like straightforward like pretty pretty harsh you know like don't do this but he does you know he goes off and uh, again has to listen to his mother at the end and it's like yeah this is you know you you've done the wrong thing you know there's only one way to atone for this which which he accepts but uh you know finally but that's uh, too late in, in, some, in some regard but um yeah, I'm I'm always interested too in watching a film like this, which deals with all of these kind of big issues, um, within the context of a of a film of that era. Because as we mentioned, it's a short film, what's 70 78 minutes, something like that. Um, you know, you have to the the bad guy, whoever the bad guy is, has to be punished in some way or, you know, die or whatever has to happen. And the Love interest has to come together. There's like certain you know kind of things that have to happen in the film, but you know, I don't know. But interesting if if the film was made today, maybe, and it's like, well, could you have tweaked some of those things? Could there be some different things come out of it? I don't, I don't know. That that might be. I'm always interested in watching watching that sort of thing. And on on one hand, it's kind of comforting because you know you watch the film it's like, well, okay, um, you know, these characters are gonna end up married living everywhere ever after we know that because they're the, the young man and woman that look good together of course it's gonna happen that sort of thing and you know the creepy old scientist is gonna die okay that that's a given but um yeah still still much fun and, and enjoyable
4: and I, and i agree with you because as soon as you saw the, um, the two characters introduced to each other is like, Oh, you know, just, you already know the whole plot that's going to go my, my mm-hmm. first time seeing it, but I knew, okay, I know where this arc's going. And that's, it's there for that point and that purpose. And thankfully they're not a major focus of the movie. They're a focus of it, yeah. but they're not the driving element because that's to me was the least important part. It just added to a contributing thing to drive um, Dr. Rook um, more nuts. And, but I want to, yeah. I want to, posit out there that I think he was already unhinged before mm-hmm. the trip to Africa a little bit, as his mother was saying, because he was not adjusted to being around other people in society. He was more used to being a loner, having his own way. It seemed like when he tried to bring up his ideas before he was scoffed at. So who knows how he brought went about doing it. Mm-hmm. But before he had, before we found out that, that the radiation poisoning or whatever, the poisoning, the radium poisoning was going on with him. He was showing the destructive power to Ray to keep the guys there to help him in his finger. Africa, like to say, Look, I see that rock watch. And like, this, I yeah. can turn. And then he turns like, I can do it to you. Oh, no, no. And I'm thinking, We'll stay, we'll stay. I'm thinking, one of the guys has a rifle. And all they got to mm-hmm. do is wait for him. He's <laughs> away from the thing. Bang, he's gone. Let the animals get him. And it can call it a day.
5: <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah, that, that's one element of the film, I think, that's, um, You know, if you're watching, if you watch the film today or if you've never seen it and you're watching it today, um, similar to a film like King Kong, for example, which, you know, any of these films of this era, which take place in Africa at some point is going to have the unfortunate stereotypical, uh, you know, African people that are helping the white scientists go and do their thing. And, you know, the whole bug eyed. Uh, sort of crazy, you know, yes, yeah, boss, kind of thing like that. It's like, yeah, it's pretty. It's unfortunate. Um, I think you can still watch a film like this or or Kong or something like that, and enjoy it and appreciate it for what it is, and also acknowledge, yeah, that's an unfortunate stereotype that was often played out, an unfortunate caricature. Um, one of the things we noticed watching it because uh, my partner Vicky and I were watching it yesterday was. She commented, that she said, you know, the way that people talk in these movies of this era, and it's it's almost, it's not really like a British accent, although some of the characters in the film are apparently British, but it's this sort of way of speaking that is kind of like a shorthand for like, well, these people are intelligent. You know, they kind of speak in sort of a very calculated and cut, you know, I can't possibly do that thing that you are wanting me to do, like a very, you know, uh, precise manner of speaking that just when you listen to it, you think, "Ah, people don't talk like that. (laughs) But I think it was a, a stereotype or caricature of, well, these are intelligent, educated people. You know, conversely, the people that that jump that jump up and their eyes bug out when they hear a sound. It's like, well, these are the not educated people. Is is the way that they sort of uh, sort of playing it. So, it's it's just an element of, of films of that era that, that they tended to characterize different people as a way of shorthand of telling a story. You know,
4: and they did that um, also with the um, the help at Paris, you know, at the, um, yeah. at the, at the Drake's house, because when the, when they found that um, the one kid, one character, one of the Drake's was killed and the, and, uh, oh, yeah. and, and uh, Bula Labandi's lady, Stevens character um, was saying to um, the, uh, the maid or one of the, one of the people there is like, speak, I think it was like, speak you stupid girl, you know? And uh, it's just because yeah. she's, I mean, she could not articulate. She just kept looking up in that. And it's just, like eh, yeah yeah there it's that's definitely where they're playing like the, the some people were able to like oh we can take this and like when she went up there and saw that her husband was dead she was still able to react and get stuff because it's like a matter of fact it's like oh yes but then later yeah. on Francis Drake's character um has a scene where certain things happen, and she just falls over and faints instead of like warning people like oh he's here she's like oh and down she goes because why they they couldn't have her yelling and warning people. So we'll just have her faint.
5: <laughs> yeah. That yes, that scene with the maid when uh Sir Francis Drake is has been found um uh been found or Francis Stevens, Francis Stevens, or Francis Stevens has been. I know, found. I kept yeah.
4: that's why I had to keep that's okay. why I had to pause myself. I wanted to say Sir Francis Drake because, like, why would they name him Sir Francis Stevens? I was like, yeah, because
5: that's, that's the character, Francis is the actress. Okay, I was getting this. The Walter Kingsford, who plays Sir Francis Stevens, yes, he's been killed, and the maid comes running down. And Whenever I see that, it's like I have you know the. The thought comes to my mind is like, well, here's your one scene in the movie. You're going to be, you're going to make sure that everyone remembers you because you're going to scream hysterically and just throw throw a fit here, Um, right? As you said, while everybody else is like, oh, he's dead. No, okay. Better call the police. You know, very very matter of factly. Um, Yeah, that's that's a typical stereotype. The 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 maid, um, you know like Uno O'Connor in, in Bride of Frankenstein or something, I guess that just goes berserk whenever something happens. It's kind of scary. It's the character, well, this person's not very smart. They're not very uh, together. Yeah. Crazy.
4: No, no, no. Wait a minute. I, 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 she was not Uno O'Connor level. I'm just going to put
5: no, that down. No, no. She was, not. <laughs> she was working towards it. She was working towards it. But no, she... <laughs> <laughs> she stayed in one place. She didn't run around in circles screaming. <laughs> <Kuna>. <laughs>
4: yeah, She wasn't given dialogue to say all she could do is scream and facial react and, and stuff like that. It's it's like it was, her character had no dialogue, so to speak, but it was, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, yeah but I, I just want to, cause I know Uno kind of can be a, a polarizing figure for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I just want to make sure people, like that it, she wasn't at that level.
5: <laughs> yeah. yeah she, wasn't. <laughs> she wasn't quite there for sure.
4: So yeah. now, now you have me wondering if she would have played that part and they would put some dialogue in there, like, oh, that this could have, that, that, who knows what that would have done to the movie? That would have definitely been a, a change of pace at that point in the movie because that's when everything's getting to the chilling part, the killings are happening and stuff, and and you had an Uno yeah. counter character suddenly doing that. That could have, I could, I could have either made or broke the movie at that point. That would it would definitely changed it
5: probably, up. Yeah, probably break it. I think actually because the thing that. Um, as I think about it now, uh, some of those universals like black cat features a kind of comedy relief scene where the, the sergeants come in to investigate the, the car crash and they start, they go totally off topic talking about which hometown is the best hometown kind of thing. And it's kind of a goofy little scene. Um, this one doesn't really have is, it doesn't really go there at all. It doesn't, it, it plays it pretty straight, which is actually good. And it's in its um, and Karloff, as he's kind of losing his mind, you know, going into madness, plays it in a quieter sort of way than, say, Lugosi in The Raven, um, uh, which I believe was the year before '35. I don't remember offhand, but in that one, you know, he's so over the top, you know, oh, you are a man, and he's like, you know, really going berserker. Uh, this film is is a little bit quieter, I guess maybe it, it plays it on more of a, so Carlos, Carlos madness is menacing in the way of like, you're watching him and you're sort of seeing the little gears in his brain going like, ah, okay, I'm going to get this guy. and I'm going to do this thing. Cause I know this is going to really scare people. This is going to upset things. If I do this thing like this, he's very uh, conniving, very plotting um, as his character. Um, which yeah, is it's interesting because that mix of like, well, he's obviously an intelligent person, and he's sort of calculating all these different things he's gonna do, but he's also insane too. <laughs> so it's like that that part playing into it. and, that, and I think it is one of the things that makes the film an enjoyable film, you know, is that it's a it's wonderful acting and it's a it's a interesting storyline and it's it, it's that it's that, gosh, she was 1930s science fiction thing, you know, um, uh, the future ain't what it used to be, you know, it was like in that, in that era of Buck Rogers and all that kind of stuff of that, that time of like, oh yeah, we might, we might take up a meteor that has, you know, magical powers. And we might get in a spaceship and fly to outer space. or we might, you know, invent a ray gun or all that kind of stuff. It's like, um, yeah, it's a world of possibility in, in that era.
4: I also liked how, I agree with you, how Carl underplayed the role because by underplaying it mm-hmm. allowed his other things to get projected and also would keep you from wondering, is he really mad? Is he not mad? Because he's not looking like the typical movie mad character from the 30s. And I think that's yeah. a smart um, decision by him as an actor to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what did you think about Violet Kimball Cooper, who played Karloff's mom? I think they were like Another, a year was, apart uh, in in real life.
5: <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean she's wonderful as this uh, elderly woman who is wise in the world. Um, knows certainly knows her son and knows what would be best for him, even though he does not follow her, her uh, wishes. Um, it's it's perhaps, a, perhaps an interesting character of that era that, that it's a wise older woman, sort of the sage who is the one who knows what's going on. And, and there's an interesting scene at, at the end when the, um, when she has, you know, uh, more or less, Ended Karloff's reign of terror, basically put a stop to it. Um, that the uh, the president of the the scientific society that that is there comes up and you know and, and says I, I must pay you homage or, or however he says it. Um, you know um, that's that's kind of an interesting thing, like that it's a woman character. The old old woman is the is the is the sage that everyone admires and looks up to whereas again like a lot of films of that era the older woman would possibly be well it'd either be like the maid working there or they would be sort of a the uh, witch or you know voodoo mistress or something like that from uh, like son of dracula or some, some you know one of those sort of characters this is this very uh, person wise in the world who doesn't say a lot, but what she's, you know, it's like the, when she talks, you better listen. Cause she, she's the one who really knows what's going on here.
4: And basically yeah, she's but, the hero of the movie at the end, because she's the one that the, yeah. based, uh, it causes an end to the antagonist story. So it's, mm-hmm. which is different than normal types that you would see in the thirties movie. It's not often where it's the, a female character, let alone a female supporting character. You know, and not, not yeah. even not even one of the main supporting characters, probably third on the list of the actresses. You know, so mm-hmm. when you're when you're going down the line, and that, I thought that was kind of like neat to have her because it all fit within the story arc that they were going with, that she would be the one at the end to um, take care of it with her cane, so to speak. Which reminds us of another movie where a, a, a character did, did take care of a, a, a child with a cane.
5: Ah. Good reference. Wow. Yeah. Claude Rains side reference there to that one. Yeah. Um, I was thinking too, she's in in her way. She's kind of almost like a Van Helsing character from uh, uh, the 31 Dracula, where it's like, well, there's this older guy that knows what's going on. And eventually people come to listen to him In, in that way there, the, the plot has some similar, you know, some similar stereotypes in that you've got um, Francis Drake as the, as the young woman and Frank Lawson as the young man. He doesn't do much other than look handsome, you know, (laughs) in the same way that uh, David Manners doesn't do much in Dracula or, you know, those films other than look handsome and be kind of, you know, the guy that's, the stable, normal guy that the that the woman will eventually want to marry, um, that part is fairly that's fairly typical of films of that era. But again, as you mentioned, they're really not central to the plot. They're um, they any they could they could be anybody in that in that role. It's just you, you needed some guy to fall in love with the girl, and that's what he does.
4: Yeah, I look at them as both being eye candy for the thirties. You know, that's just okay. We need Mm -hmm. we need to. You want to hit different audiences, you know. So, um, Mm -hmm. since your lead actors are older, you want to get some that are younger, so that way you can bring in other people. You know, everybody's trying to hit those different marketing things, and uh, uh, you know, and Universal had the dog in it because I think was wasn't it um, one of the things they they always like. I'm trying to remember his name. The guy that that Rain Universal at that time.
5: It was it Carl Lemley?
4: Yeah, Lemley. Carl Lemley. Um yeah. if, I think if I remember correctly he was he was quoted as saying something like, "Oh, every movie's better if it has a dog in it." Or something like that because <laughs>
5: <laughs> Well, that's the, the dog, yeah, the dog, the, the great dane that they have in that is like the size of an elephant. Um but that's kind of interesting too in that um you were talking about Karloff underplaying things in the film um, when he first discovers that he has radiation poisoning. I, I guess is what it is that he has, uh, and the he, when he touches someone or something, they die. It's his dog, and you know that that scene is wonderfully done. In that he's sitting there, you know, he realizes that there's something wrong. He doesn't know what it is, and he, he's kind of. You know, you see the mind racing, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And of course the dog comes up to you as dogs do like the dog is here to comfort you. And he kind of absentmindedly pets the dog on the head and the dog <laughs> falls right over. Um, it, it's kind of a very matter of fact thing. And then he realizes like, Oh my goodness. Like I kill people when I touch them, I kill any living thing when I touch it. Um, that That, that was played well. Like, Not, it didn't build it up like this is a big dramatic scene, get ready. It was kind of like matter of fact, and then oh man, something's really wrong here.
4: And I enjoy that when movies do that because sometimes the movies will play everything up, the music's art, everything's telegraphed, you know, the imagery. Mm -hmm. And but in real life, which movies are not, I mean, I, I know it's a different art form, but in real life, things happen boom. You know, and 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 it can happen anytime, anywhere, when anything's going on. You could be eating a meal and somebody drops right over. I mean, anything could happen at those particular times, and I think that adds the more the impact to it because you weren't expecting it. And uh, I mean, of course, when I saw what was coming up, even though know, I'd never seen the movie before, I knew, oh yeah, I think I know where this is going. So I, I knew from that point, but I can imagine audiences maybe back then not knowing he had a killing touch because it's called the invisible ray. So why would you think he had the, 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 uh, the touch of death, like the, like the, the the Midas touch, but in a bad way, of course the Midas touch wasn't a good way either, but um, it goes off that same old stories and mythology and they just adapted it. But you wouldn't know that going into this movie at that point, you just think, Oh, he's, he's dying. Or something's affecting him, and it's it's going to be in a poor way. And the dogs coming over to comfort him. And if he didn't have a killing touch, it could have been where he's you know petting the dog, and the dog's right there with him. And then how is he going to handle the situation? So it could have been played a lot of different ways. But if yeah. you didn't, you know, at that time where you wouldn't have known in 1936, possibly I think it it's it's the end of the dog.
5: <laughs> That's a good point. The, the title, The Invisible Ray. I hadn't really thought about it till now, but. The title basically seems to refer to the beginning of the film, where he talks about being able to capture a a ray of light coming from the Andromeda galaxy that has, you know, this scene on it, basically, of how this meteor came to Earth. Um, But that's really pretty much the only place where the invisible ray is is utilized in the film. I mean, unless you're, unless the ray that they use from the the radium X that they discover is part of it too. But that's, that's kind of the main, I mean, they could have, they could have titled this film, the killer touch, or you could have titled this film uh, several other things that might reference more of what actually goes on in the plot in it. But um, yeah,
4: I, I yeah, I agree, I, I agree with it. you. I think the ray was used, Two ways: one at the very beginning, and one where it got used for as the destructive mechanism and the healing mechanism. Because yeah. it just yeah. it saves you a lot on special effects if you call it the invisible ray. Hey, you can't see it because mm-hmm. it's it's invisible. Uh-huh.
5: <laughs> well, and it's yeah. Another, I mean, another thing. I wonder about the fi- that's wonderful about the film is the gadgetry that he has in his laboratory, and then the ray gun itself is very, again, very nineteen thirties. Sci-fi looking kind of thing. Uh, it plays up well, and you know, it's interesting because there's it, it's mixed in with you know his his uh, um, laboratory is in the Carpathian Mountains. So you know, the, the first setting you see is this like old castle that could be from the Frankenstein movies or something, and and all of the the servants in the place are vaguely Tyrolean looking. And so it's like, Oh yes, I, I, they probably just pulled those costumes right out of the, out of the uh, wardrobe set that they used in, in Frankenstein, you know, the Lederhosen and whatever, and whatever else. But, but then it quickly does move into, you know, a modern world kind of, uh, kind of story, which is, is nice.
4: Imagine if somebody was actually able to, ma- if somebody made this, if you can get a one six. Mm-hmm scale version of the invisible ray that, that Dr. You know, Rook uses and a figure of him. That would be mm-hmm. something cool to put on the shelf.
5: You know, I'm just, I'm just saying. You're sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I'd, I'd want, I'd want Legosi's character in there too, with his goatee and looking so good. I mean, he, he really looks sharp in this movie. He's got the, you know, the hair slicked back, Uh, the goatee kind of thing. He just, yeah, he just looks that part so, so well, um, of like the intelligence, thoughtful, you know, character like that.
4: Yes. And for those listeners that are hearing my dog is barking at something outside, probably a squirrel. since we used an up reference earlier, you know, it's probably, it's probably a squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I, I knew it's, Oh, if I said that movie, he'd probably be like squirrel. And off he went, but that, it happened. It was a delayed effect, but alas, those, those squirrels will move on. Uh I'm trying to think other things I wanted to bring up with the movie. The one thing I don't think we really talked about was the, um the music. What did you, obviously with your background, what did you think of Franz Waxman's score?
5: Uh Enjoyable. It worked. It works well. I reckon, you know, those of you, those folks who, who watch a lot of the universals of this era will recognize, um, some themes, some melodic themes that are in there. Um, it's worth noting that at this point in, <clears throat> in film history, um, you were only maybe, uh, five or six years post silent movie era. And in the silent film era, um, there were sometimes scores written for films, but not often. Generally, the more common thing was that there were pieces of music that were written for like a chase scene, a love scene, a dramatic scene of this sort or that sort. And um, if you were going to see a film in a, a theater that was large enough to have an orchestra playing of some sort, um and I'm incredibly fortunate living here in Louisville, Colorado, because one of the best, one of the premier silent movie orchestras, the Mount Alto Orchestra, uh, is based here in, in our town. And they play a lot of different things around the area. Uh, and what they work with is they piece together, you know, a, a set of music they're going to play during the film based on all of these scores so in the early thirties, uh, Steiner and Waxman and people like that, that had, you know, this sort of library, they might even have been using some music that had been composed during the silent era and they would piece it together in terms of, okay, well, this is going to be the thoughtful scene where the woman realizes that the man doesn't love her and she's crying. And so we're going to put that piece of music in here um, it works well. Again, it's not uh, overly dramatic. You know, some sometimes um, film music of that era is overly bombastic where it doesn't really need to be because again, this is not a, um, this is not a monster crashing through walls kind of movie. This is more of a psychological drama. And so um, I think it, it plays well, but it'd be, it's interesting if you watch this and you know a lot of, films of that era, you'll recognize some of the, some of the music, uh, some of the melodies that are, that are incorporated into it.
4: And, and one thing I I agree with you a lot with that score. The one thing I want to add, not the bombastic scores, not just of that era, but there's still movies being churned out with, where the score is just oh, yeah. overpower. It's just like, what well, you're just, you're way over top. And I love it when a score and a film mesh together so well and um and this one it does they do mesh together it does mesh together very well it's not one i would buy but it's one that fits the movie and and sometimes you do hit those magical moments where score and movie mesh and you also want the score you know because you, mm-hmm. you you were talking yeah. about earlier with King Kong where you can just listen to it by itself and um and still enjoy that the work of the music so in this one, I think we have a good mesh, but not not a classic mesh, but a good mesh.
5: Yeah, and it it it, um, it works. Yeah, it, it just supports the film. It just supports the film uh, in a way and doesn't doesn't distract from anything that's going on. It's it's a, sort of a pet peeve I have actually, although I have seen many films where I that I enjoy, and I basically enjoy this element. It's when Films in, more in modern day will use a popular piece of music like, you know, uh, I don't know, films will use like Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones or Jimi Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower" Tower or something like that in a film. Um, what I dislike about it is I already have an emotional attachment to that piece of music. It already elicits a certain emotion for me. And so when you put it into a movie, I feel like they're cheating a little bit. <laughs> like, oh, well, you're just trying to, you know, you're just trying to make me think 1960s here by playing this thing. Okay, you know, you don't have to. You can you can do something else, but okay, you know, and, and I feel like you're... So a lot of music of this era really, where that wasn't a common practice at all to do that sort of thing. Um, it's like, yeah, the music is just there to sort of serve... The scene and move it along a little bit, um, and and not get in your way too much. I see your dog has joined you.
4: Yes, yes, I'm I'm joined. Derek Derek has his cat Wednesday. I got my dog Milo. So Milo has joined me. He's he's, excellent. He's he's giving me the look like, what's going on, man? (laughs) Because I
5: picked him up. (laughs) But uh, this like the phantom toll booth, Milo or.
4: no no, no. And, he was he was named he's a rescue dog so he was already named when we got right. him. so it's um,
5: oh, wonderful
4: yeah all, all my dogs I've gotten in the last what 20 some odd years have all been rescue dogs and and those kind of things and uh, it's it, it just you just love to give them the love and and fun and then uh, it's mm-hmm. it's great when you see them adjust to their new habitat in that first year mm-hmm. and 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 they, yeah. and they get the idea of oh they're no longer in that type of circumstance or whatever anymore. And that, and then they, you could, and then when you can see them relax, that's so great yeah. when they, when they finally realize they're part of a family or a pack in his mind.
5: Yeah.
4: But, you know, and he did not like, he did not like the invisible ray for one reason, because he, you know, what happened to the great Dane, which you mentioned earlier, he, he saw that and he just gave me, he, he gave me a look like a oh, really man. They had to, they had to kill the dog. Uh, so, so for, for, yeah. For the dog it was an automatic like as soon as he saw that he he walked away but yeah that, that's from his point of view he, you know he, it's, everybody's everybody comes in with different circumstances I know there are people out there who don't want to see any animal deaths and, yeah. and and at all even though this one is rather a, a very benign one compared to some yeah. of them it basically basically the dog was just trained to lay down so he touches it the dog yeah. trainer told to lay down and just to stay still. Uh, That's that's the um, the extent of the horrificness that happens to the dog. Um, But it's still it's still, as you said, the way Karloff played it. it, And again, by underplaying it as a a man of science, he didn't overly emote. He just realized he lost his companion. And of course, as the movie goes on, he would lose more and more companions. But this is probably the one that he, he cherished the most besides his mom. Um, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things. So it was just making him more isolated and more alone and more into that descent of madness. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah.
4: Otherwise I enjoyed this movie. It's, it's definitely one I'm glad I watched. I don't own it. And for listeners that don't own the movie, it is on archive.org, you know, so it's out mm-hmm. there. It's readily available. It's also on Blu-ray. And what is the, what is the, um the, the how good is the quality of the Blu-ray print? Cause you have that. I'm sure.
5: Uh, I don't actually. I have I it have on a DVD set. With um, it's, it's on a set that has, uh, it's called the Lugosi Collection, I think. Or, and it's got Black, Black Cat, Raven, uh, This, uh, Murders in the Room, Morgan, Black Friday. Um, I haven't seen the Blu-ray of it, to tell you the truth. And as we were talking earlier, I think before we were recording, with some films of this era, I feel like having it on a DVD is fine. Uh, you know, if I saw it, it, like King Kong was one that I had on, on on DVD, for example, and then I did see the Blu-ray, and I thought, okay, this this is a significantly more enjoyable watch uh, version. I'll, I'll get that. Um, some of them of that era, as we talked about, sometimes seeing it clear more clearly is not really... Necessary. Uh, it doesn't really enhance anything. There's a lot. I would imagine in this film, a lot of stuff would probably tend to show because there's a lot of matte painting and things in this that you know, if you know what to look for, you know, oh, okay, that's that's a painting. Obviously, I know I know what they're doing here. That castle shot and things like that. It might end up being more distracting if that sort of thing looked more clear and you could. It was like you could see you could see the lines, you know, in it more delineated it it might not really help it um for me it's fine like this i'm i'm this way about um a lot of the art form that i love whether it's music or books or uh things you know the people that uh that have to have uh you know the particular favorite record on 150 gram vinyl virgin pressing sort of thing or something like that i think i'm not you know, I don't have a sophisticated enough sound system where I could tell the difference between that and playing it off a a CD or streaming it. And same thing with movies. I don't have a, you know, sophisticated enough TV, although it works fine for me that I'm going to notice for the most part, much of the difference in, in like, Oh, well, yes, I'm glad I, now I have that on the the new Blu-ray remaster or something like that.
4: Um, You and I were talking about that and I brought up Gojira which I have mm-hmm. a, the, the lovely DVD version when it came out, when they, when they were releasing a lot of the, the original Godzilla movies on the, this nice DVD set with all these special features and stuff like that. And then of course they came out not that long ago with the Blu-ray version of it. And I, mm-hmm. I remember talking actually with Derek off air one time and he said, aren't you going to get the Blu-ray? And I'm like, no, because well, it, it has special features. I said, yeah, but it's only like two or three special features different than the DVD, which I will For me, I'm kind of weird with special features. It's it's, it's not the main reason for me to get something if it's only one or two Mm -hmm. things different and and the rest I have. I'm I'm really more more concerned about the quality of the print. And if I have the DVD is just so well done, I enjoy it. But I know if I get the Blu-ray, something just tells me it's going to be one of those, I'm going to see too much. And I'm going to be like, oh, it's destroying that movie magic which you were just talking about. And I don't want to Mm -hmm. have that movie magic Destroyed. That's why I'll not get War of the Worlds on Blu-ray because I heard that you can see wires and things like that. I don't want to see the wires. I know some people do, and some people it doesn't matter. That's fine. I just don't. I, I, I just I'm happy with a nice quality DVD uh, print. And if I don't, it, yes, the other one might have these great special features or whatever. But I, I'm only going to probably watch the special features or listen to them if it's a commentary one
5: time or twice in my life (laughs) there's so many good movies to watch you have time to watch all the special features i mean you know um yeah i hear you
4: yeah but i think that's i think that's a thing we both agree on so i think we're i think you and i are in the same mind but hey other people that's fine you know it's your money go for it
5: (laughs) that's what you like yeah it's we live in a wonderful age for that sort of thing of uh stuff being remastered and and uh refurbished and whatever, and, um, different, different ways you can enjoy it. Yeah. I'd say go for it.
4: Now you brought up your music earlier on, where can people get your music, Kevin? Where can people listen to and purchase? And I'm not I mean, yes, I know people can listen to it on Spotify, but I've mm-hmm. purchased, um, some of your CDs before. Cause my thing is if there's certain music I like, I like to be able to support the artist, and that way to create more of that work. How can people do that same thing?
5: Probably the best is uh, just kevinslick.com. There are some uh, physical copies of CDs available there. Uh, of course, Spotify and any and Apple Music, any uh, streaming service like that has has a lot of stuff you can you can hear. Uh, that's just kevinslick.com. Probably has all of the different links to things that you could you could find, whether it's books or or music or whatever.
4: Yeah, I haven't gotten into your books yet, but I know from listening to your music, I'm assuming the poetry book is going to be, is, is amazing, you know, because if you, if you can write the songs that you write, I mean, it's pretty much the same thing without the music. But I always think it's funny when you listen to somebody that is an artist like yourself and then you read a book of poetry, you can almost put a soundtrack from that artist in your mind when you're reading the words because you're familiar with their work.
5: For sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
4: But thank you for helping, um, Derek and me out, you know, with Derek and doing this emergency episode.
5: Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's for the best, the best of reasons. If, if Derek is, is busy doing wedding stuff, you know, that's, that's a good, a good thing to be doing. And, uh, I think a lot of us, uh, have been really happy, uh, hearing his uh, podcast with Beth on and, uh, enjoying, enjoying that whole thing. So, um, like I said, I don't know when this will be running in, in relation to that, but, uh, but it's, it's a wonderful thing. I think a lot of us are, are quite happy to help out and be a part of that whole fun thing.
4: Oh, I'm always happy to help him and just, just give him a chance to have that little extra breathing room if he needs it, when he needs it. Um, yeah and that kind of thing. And obviously, he, he and Beth, um, from hearing him on the podcast and talking to Derek also, are um, doing really well together. He, he's 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 obviously hitting above his pay grade, you know, whatever you want to look at it.
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, it's wonderful because, you know, he's getting married in the morning. Ding, ding, dong, the bells are going to chime. Yeah. Pull out the stopper. but get him to the church on time or get him to the convention on time get him to monster bash on time (laughs) get him to the podcast on time
0: (laughs) all right big thanks to kevin steve mark and ketty for being part of this week's episode of monster kid radio and thank you for listening And if you're feeling froggy, thank you for sharing posts about Monster Kid Radio and the various social media platforms out there. Retweeting tweets, sharing posts on Facebook, letting people know about MKR on the various message boards. We do have a Reddit. We have a Discord. We have a Patreon. We have Facebook and Twitter. All the links to all of that you're going to find over on our website in the show notes at monsterkidradio.net. Please consider checking that out and, well, just checking that out to see everything else we got going on we have links to our Amazon affiliate page. So if you use Amazon for anything, please consider clicking on that Amazon affiliate button to go shop for Amazon product. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It just takes a couple of pennies out of the pocket of Jeff Rocketman Bezos. And, uh, you know, any thing you can do to help us out would be appreciated. Also on the website, you're going to be able to see what's coming up next. And I can tell you that we've got another Steve Turek episode coming up where he sat down with... Ansel Farage, indie filmmaker, friend of the show. He's talking about, oh man, Mark of the Vampire? Ah, oh, dude, more Bela Lugosi goodness. I love some Bela Lugosi goodness, and we're going to put some Lugosi goodness in your ears next week here on the podcast. Big thanks to Steve Turk for making all that happen, coordinating time, making things work, and, and all of that as, uh, once again, I have been getting married and leading up to that and now packing and moving. And, you know, I I didn't talk about it at the top of the show because I didn't want to bore y'all with it again, but I'm looking for work. So if anybody uh, knows of any uh, job openings in the audio or podcast or video space, I'm a freelancer and I'm taking on new clients. So drop me a line. You're doing an independent film. You need some sound work done, sound effects, sound foley dialogue, editing, sound editing, sound design, look me up and I'll hook you up. All right, let's go ahead and wrap this up by reminding you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that does not apply to the song "Cocksure Unsure. That is copyright 2022 the Squadron Leaders. You can find them over at thesquadronleaders.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes to check out their album and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you and maybe even pick it up for yourself. You can buy the song for one pound. I don't know what that comes out to in dollars, but it's, it's super affordable. And supporting independent musicians and artists is something that's very, very important to us here on Monster Kid Radio. So please consider throwing them some attention. Anyway, my name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.